0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Peter L. Lawrence, Associate Professor of Urban Design, History, and Theory at Clemson University School of Architecture. His book, Becoming Jane Jacobs, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is a topic Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel... Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Peter L. Lawrence, Associate Professor of Urban Design, History, and Theory at Clemson University School of Architecture. His book, Becoming Jane Jacobs, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is a topic of this show. Lawrence has given us an intellectual biography of the architecture critic and neo-functionalist Jane Jacobs and how she came to write the 1961 classic, The Death, and life of great American cities. Beginning with Jacob's arrival in New York City in 1934, with only a high school diploma and writing aspirations, Lawrence falls her career to the pages of Architectural Forum under the editorial direction of Douglas Haskell. At the magazine, she honed her critical skills and was exposed to the latest in urban design and renewal, working with leading architects and planners. Lawrence argues that there are persistent myths about Jacobs, including her status as a housewife and an amateur urban activist who surprisingly wrote a classic or of a genius. Rather, Jacobs transformed herself into a sophisticated critic influenced by the ideas of a wide circle of intellectuals and wrote a great deal before and after her most well-known work. Death and Life of Great American Cities synthesized many previous ideas and proposed a new way to think about cities that considered the social networks and perspective of the person on the street, rather than top-down planning that disregarded the human element for efficiency and form. Her vision for the city was of a living system with flexibility, creativity, and diversity, offering a sense of connection by mixing the old and the new. Lawrence has given us not only the evolution of Jacob's ideas, but also the ways mid-century intellectuals conceived of the cities we now live in. Here is my conversation with Peter Lawrence. Now let me introduce you to the author, Peter Lawrence. Peter, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Thanks, Lillian. One of the reasons I enjoyed your book was due to my own interest and fascination with how we ended up with the cities that we have. And you have not only given us Jane Jacobs and her vision, but also much of thinking about cities in the 20th century. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Becoming Jane Jacobs.
1: Well, thanks, Lillian. Uh, I I look forward to this conversation. Uh, I got started writing about Jane Jacobs when I was uh, uh, a professional student in, in architecture um, getting a master of architecture degree, a professional degree um, and somewhere along the way I decided to, do um, well I, I wrote a, a seminar paper about Jane Jacobs in a course and that turned into a thesis and I pursued that uh, already as, as a thesis instead of a design project. Um, then I went into uh, teaching and then went back and uh, pursued it as a, as a dissertation. And uh, in that training, I, I learned how to be a better historian, for sure. But uh, I continued this, this line of, uh, of research, and uh, I think in a, in a much better way. Um, it's funny to look back at the thesis and see see some similar themes, but, um, but a, a much more, uh, I think, more um, professional approach uh, in terms of the history. And uh, so um, it's been a long journey. Journey and, and but one that I've really enjoyed. I, I couldn't have. Um, studied. I couldn't have studied uh, Jane Jacobs' work for as long as I, I as I have without really having uh, admired her work and uh, uh, and found it very um, rich in terms of the uh, all sorts of different um, aspects of uh, American urban history. Um, and architectural and urban history and theory that it opened up for me.
0: Now, most people uh, don't have any inkling about how architects do their work. Most of us don't know anything about architecture. We're never really exposed to that. And we kn- know even less about Jane Jacobs. I knew her name. I knew something about her. Just, uh, But I uh, m- probably most of the audience is not going to know a lot about her. Who was Jane Jacobs and why is she important? And... Why did you choose to write about her? What is the problem? Because, you know, you do talk about there is a problem with the understanding of Jane Jacobs.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll start maybe in, in reverse order on your questions. Um, I, um, well, The reason that she was important to me initially um, to, to study is because she really, uh, her work, and I'm really thinking about the work of hers that is most familiar to, to most people, which is the Death and Life of Great American Cities, that book, which was published in in 1961, uh, emerges at a really critical point in American urban history, and that um, that urban history, uh, of course, is also has a, has global dimensions um, geographically, um, and then conceptually touches on so many different disciplines, of course, city planning and, uh, and of course, architecture. And architecture because architects, uh, particularly in mid-century, were involved in city planning decisions in certain ways. In some ways, they were less involved than people realize today, and in some ways, in, in a sense, they were more so. Um, perhaps we can get into that. Those subtleties um, later, but what's key is that she emerges, her, her work in this book emerged at a just a decisive point in American history in terms of the ways that after, in the, in the post-war period, American cities are being modernized, they're being reshaped, and ideas that have been uh, uh, evolved uh, and kicked around for a couple of decades, are being put into practice because of the delays um, that is brought about by, uh, in terms of domestic construction, by World War II and before that, the Great Depression. So there's a lot of pent up energy to uh, to make changes to American cities uh, as soon as as soon as the late 1940s. And, um, and uh, part of what I try to explain in my book is a lot about the timing uh, of these events and phenomenon, and how Jacobs' uh, experiences uh, intersect with this uh, these, these broader uh, this broader history. Most so-
0: most of the time that you're talking about Jane Jacobs, she is a, a, in New York City. So that seems to be her her main experience of the city, even though she does go out to other places. uh, And uh, she goes there in 1934, really with a high school diploma, (laughs) and uh, aspirations to be a writer. Did she have at that point when she started, did she have aspirations to be an architectural writer, or is that something that she just sort of came into?
1: She was interested in cities from, from an early age, and this gets a little bit about who she was. Um, she, she, uh, she's born in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1916, and uh, by the time she's a young adult, and as you say, she, she moves, moves to New York in 1934, right when she turns 18, and she's, you know her parents say that it's okay. For her to, to leave home and to, to begin her uh, her adult life, uh, it's of course uh, the uh, you know in the midst of the depression, um, maybe uh, maybe towards the you know uh, upturn um, of of things, um, but uh, but her experiences are very much shaped from a very early uh, time in her life in this experience of uh, Scranton and its uh, its economic decline and observing uh, New York City during the depression and and um, and not so much that New York City was was suffering during the depression which of course it was but how it actually was surviving and how, how it, at, at a certain level um, maybe it was, um, thriving in ways that other smaller cities, less complex cities, uh, like Scranton, um, weren't. So, uh, so was, she, was she interested in architectural writing? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't know of any evidence of that. But certainly she was interested in cities from a very early age. And uh, her biography um, is, uh, is one where the geography... Uh, these geographical experiences are really critical. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, um, it's an important circumstance, for example, that she's, she's born in a city um, that's really a sh- relatively short distance away from New York City.
0: Well, she um, finds her way to, uh, after several different kind of writing gigs, she finds her way into the architectural forum on the staff of architectural forum and writing about architecture as a, and learning how how to be a critic, and she is exposed to like lots of ideas and lots of different uh, very prominent uh, architects and city planners, and she gets she she's really educated on the job and uh, begins to develop her ideas. But I wanted to know about what were in the 30s and 40s and 50s as she's uh, that she's coming out of. What were the, the 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 problems of cities, and what were what was the thinking about cities generally? There seems to be a lot of different schools of thoughts. That, thoughts that you talk about in your book, uh, different people had different solutions to how to solve the problem, in, in, uh, the problem of uh, sprawl, the problem of uh, the suburbs, the problem of traffic, cars, uh, the slums. There was gazillion different problems that cities were experiencing, and you talk about different ways people were approaching those solutions. What were some of the things that she was exposed to, some of the ideas and some of the people that were prominent in proposing different solutions to cities?
1: That's a great question. So, well, Jacobs writes Death and Life in the 1950s, and it's, as I suggested earlier, it's a a moment where a lot of ideas that had the a longer, uh, history, um, are, um, are, uh, put into, uh, into practice, um, are, are made real. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I, I try to, to bring forward uh, in, in my book is, to show how, uh, not only did Jacobs not appear out of nowhere in the late 1950s, let alone 1961, when this book appears, that there's a um, that she has uh, an education, um, uh, an experiences over the the previous decades that, that um, enable her to write this book, but also that the historical moment and the things that she's writing about and criticizing also have a much longer history. So to to go back, and uh, what I tried to do is is, is to in a sense uh, offer a, an intellectual biography of Jane Jacobs alongside an intellectual biography, if you will, of American cities. And 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 in this, the ideas that are that are playing out in, in cities over these, these decades are are indeed really important. So in the nineteen thirties, one of the things I I seek to show is that really as you know when she moves to New York in 1934 she's 18 years old there are already the the ideas that in some ways will um, proliferate to a breaking point are already being explored so um, and even bef- and in some of these things go back to even before she got to New York City so one of the things I try to point out, for example, there's a there's an anecdote about how um, and now I have am practically forgotten the year, but um, well before Jacobs ha, has has gone to New York City, the problem of cars and traffic is already uh, one that is very familiar to us. Um, uh, well, less than a hundred years later, um, but but. Uh, well, less than hundred years, years later, I think, is, is is good enough in the sense that it's really only within a decade or maybe a decade and a half of the, the Model T, the first mass-produced automobile, that we already have traffic problems, or New York City already has traffic problems. And uh, so the, the, the car, the, the, the single-family car, uh, is a relatively new invention, but the problems with it, that we're familiar with today, let alone that Jacobs was uh, encountering in the fifties, in were already familiar. So, in um, that, that you know, those problems already by the twenties, um, with the, the automobile and traffic, are leading to the idea of widening roads and highways and basically organizing cities for the automobile. Uh, and throughout her life, this is. This is a major theme, a major, a major issue for, for Jane Jacobs, um, and in her writing from, um, from Death and Life to her last book, Dark Age Ahead, she still has writing at great length about the problem of cars and highways and, and transportation issues uh, as they shape the built environment in 2004. So this, this, is a, this, is a, this is an issue for American cities, it's an issue for Jane Jacobs, and it's, it remains an issue for us today. So issues of the car, transportation, and the way they shape, uh, the way the car shapes cities is is, uh, is one that's been around a long time. It was around before Jane Jacobs fought Robert Moses and fought Robert Moses' plans for uh, extending Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park, one of Jacob's famous uh Public uh, activist projects and community battles. Um, the problem of cars predates uh, her fight with Robert Moses' uh, Lower Manhattan Expressway. Another famous, another famous battle. This is a problem that um, that really predates her, and and uh, one that though, remains with us.
0: The other, the other uh, one that I had mentioned is slums. Cities are exploding, uh, they're huge, they're getting bigger all the time, and you've got a lot of slums, and there are proposed solutions and actual solutions that are attra- attempted to clear away slums. Can you talk about the problems of slums? Because it's not just a problem of, oh, it looks bad, but it's also there's a segregation problem, there's there's all kinds of issues that come out of slum, uh, slum neighborhoods.
1: Absolutely. There are this is a this is an even more complicated uh, topic than than the, than the issue of automobiles and transportation but in a similar way the ideas about housing and uh, public housing public uh, affordable subsidized housing and in terms as a social good as well as the um, the Qualities of the housing that were aspired to, that uh, that led to uh, various types of project housing developments. These also predate uh, the death and life of great American cities. And Jake's writing about these issues by a number of decades. Uh, again, an early anecdote that I share in the book is that that the first um, public housing project in New York City, and um, and one of the first, uh, in the United States, um, first houses in lower Manhattan, uh, is built and, and is dedicated and open with great fanfare right around the time that, uh, Jacobs, uh, moves to New York city as a, as a young adult or as a teenager. So, uh, and I try to trace the evolution of thinking about, uh, uh, affordable housing, but it's uh, it's more than affordable housing. It's more about uh, urban redevelopment uh, and, and the development of of housing. Now, slums is is it, slums are a critical part of this, but it's but it's not the only issue. And one of the things that's often forgotten is that urban redevelopment, urban renewal projects that uh, c- that were focused on housing construction included middle-class urban renewal uh, housing projects, and it also included uh, upper-income or high-income urban renewal housing projects. So um, the issue of urban redevelopment for housing in large-scale projects is not only about slums. Well, (laughs) it's not only about affordable housing, at least. Um, Now... The issue of slums is um, is a complicated one in the sense that it, uh, it taps in. You know, one has to talk about, um, well, a whole host of issues. Uh, the first are demographic, that um, in the early years of the 20th century, New York City is exploding in population. It's growing enormously, and it's growing in ways in, that um, – we don't really see American cities growing today, uh, in terms of you know a city du- you know doubling in its size from from three and a half million to, to seven million people uh, in the course of a, of, a, of a decade or two. We don't see this kind of growth anymore. This is what's taking place in New York City in the early twentieth century, um, and uh, this this kind of urban growth then. Um, you know, uh, has, uh, encounters the the Great Depression, which uh, limits, obviously, new housing construction and the rehabilitation of uh, the existing housing stock. And then in the short intervening years, relatively short intervening years, between the end of the Great Depression and the start of World War II, um, there's, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of housing units that are being created. And so by the time you get, again, to the post-war period, you have a lot of pent-up demand for modernization in general, but the uh, in the construction of housing units in particular. And of course, we know, uh, you know, from, from our, our basic American history that um, as uh, GIs return from World War II, one of the things that they're promised is uh, uh, is the American dream, and that might include a single-family house in the suburbs. Um, but at the very least, it includes um, some decent housing and uh, there is a huge housing shortage in, in the post-war period in, in New York City in particular and, and elsewhere and uh, it's this uh, it is, it is uh, these demographics that uh, promote um, the legislation that, that gives us urban redevelopment and urban renewal but also uh, the construction and uh, development in, in suburban America.
0: Now, she, had a, she did critique how, how uh, slums were cleared away without ever really understanding uh, that slums were not just bad housing, that there were actually uh, communities that people were connected to on the street level. And what she was critiquing was you plow away all, all that's there, and you disperse the community, then you build something new and sparkling and clean, but in a way it's sort of dead. Uh, and it's it's not the way people live. Uh, you take away the street life, uh, the corner grocery store, the barbershop, the church, the where people are actually doing things that seem invisible, but that are very important to sustaining a, a living organism of a city. Can you talk a little bit about some of that, uh, her perspective on that?
1: Sure. Well, one of the things that makes Jacobs made her unique as, a, as an architectural journalist or an architectural critic was that she wasn't trained as an architect. So she didn't have the kind of um, ambitions that, that, that architects of the time did in terms of uh, creating new, uh, new buildings and creating new neighborhoods and creating new cities. So she was, um, she was somewhat uh, immune to some extent to a lot of these uh, more utopian and aspiration ideas, ideas and ideals. So, um, so absolutely, she is able to appreciate the uh, the rundown um, and the really the unesthetic, um, the un. The, I don't know the non-modern, the unmodern neighborhoods of of New York and other cities in ways that, um, uh, well, that architects and city planners, being um, familiar with uh, the literature and, uh, of, and the um, ideals of, of a, of a of much more um, uh, utopian. Possibilities um, we're, we're, we're thinking and pursuing. So um, she uh, she could really appreciate the the old city in ways that um, the architects and city planners really really weren't. Um, she wasn't completely alone in this. But um, but she was certainly in a position to to formulate ideas and and, and write about these and uh, to think about these um, in preparation for then uh, writing *Death and Life*.
0: Now there were several th- schools of thought about cities among architects and planners. Uh, you talk a lot about when you start off about modernism and functionalism and how that was viewed and how and she critiques how that deteriorated into this sort of. Uh, a way that was not not working. It was, like you said, sort of utopian, and the all ideas of garden cities, the radiant city, there were different little movements there of people articulating what they thought the city was supposed to be, but it seemed like all those concepts uh, left pe- real people, living people, and communities out of the picture.
1: Well, you've touched on the idea of, of functionalism and the... The functionally organized city was was uh, a modern idea, um, and not necessarily a modernist idea in the sense of the uh, uh, modernist architecture. It was simply a, a modern idea. It seemed like at the time that it was the the state of the art. That that cities, in order to um, be prosperous and be efficient. Would organize themselves in a functional manner that we would have, um, uh, you know, our housing in one area and our factories in another, and uh, and uh, and so on and so forth. Rather than the mixed and jumbled up um, old organic nineteenth uh, century and earlier earlier city. And a- again, this is an idea that's shared by. Um, by planners and architects of all sorts of uh, aesthetic sensibilities. So we can see, um, at the same time, we find uh, modernist architects um, and planners um, talking about uh, modern architecture, architecture that would also be uh, affordable and um, easily constructive, in in, in addition to, to having a certain aesthetic sensibility. We also find planners... And architects um, of more traditional sensibilities arguing for the same sorts of uh, functional organization. So this is an issue that transcends uh, style or aesthetics. Uh, it's it's a broadly shared um, sensibility, and it's the kind of sensibility that gives us uh, that, that gave gave us gave American cities uh, zoning laws. Um, uh, laws that would uh, would organize um, uses in cities in in functional uh, in functional ways, functionalist ways. Uh, so that's really a, a a really over overarching paradigm. It's a true truly overarching paradigm that uh, Jacobs challenges in terms of her idea, critical and core idea about the need for mixed primary uses. This is one of her four key uh, criteria for city diversity and city vitality. Uh, and that single concept is one that is completely counter um, to the, the, the idea about functionalist organization of cities that has a uh, at least a 50-year uh, history before she challenges it.
0: So, who's she taking on? Are there particular names that are associated with this—architects uh, or city planners—who are really promoting this this functionalist way, or is this just sort of the, the sort of the orthodoxy of of architecture and planning at that time?
1: It, it it is it it's it's the latter. it, it is a it's an overarching paradigm that uh, again transcends um, aesthetic sensibilities. That uh, that even it, it transcends uh, just to some extent the the question of cities versus um, suburbs uh, or cities versus versus uh, satellite garden cities uh, because all of those w- whether whether one was conceiving of a of a garden city, a so-called garden city, really a, a suburban sort of city, uh, at the uh, at the turn of the twentieth century, or um, or uh, uh, modernizing existing cities in the um, well, more in the nineteen twenties, uh, um, the ideas about functionalist organization would. Would be found throughout uh, throughout the the different um, the the otherwise different ways of thinking about
0: things. Uh, How did she feel about? You talk about it in your book. Her thinking about suburbs, uh, urban sprawl. She went out to suburbs to see what was being done and how that functionalist sort of model worked. You know, where you have the houses in one place and the retail shopping in somewhere else. how was, what, what was her response to that? Because she was very much a, an urban person living in New York City.
1: She, she certainly was. And Death and Life is, is, is very much about and great American cities. It's very much about cities. But throughout the book, there is the, um, the, the theme of the suburbs and, um, and one of the things that I try to put in my book is the way that she was thinking about and writing about the suburbs, and even the you know the land, um, our natural resources of land beyond the suburbs. At the same time uh, that she was she was writing Death and Life. So um, this this is another major and overarching. Theme um, it, it relates to to transportation and cars to some extent, um, and it is uh, it's um, it's very much related to a much larger uh, history of American cities. In in this case, really the entire uh, the history of the entire uh, uh, American built environment. So when again the 1950s are critical uh, because. Um, In the post-war period, uh, cities really require modernization. Uh, They seem to need um, uh, many, many people, uh, I think really most people uh, at the time, uh, really believe that that, um, the transportation uh, system needs to be um, improved for uh, all of these automobiles that that people want to have. And... um, and, uh, and at the same time, um, of course, it's, it's the, the beginning uh, of really mass suburbanization. Uh, so, that again is the is really critical um, background and, and backdrop for Jacob's writing The Death of Life of Great American Cities. This issue of suburbanization, it, like, like problems of, of the car, is one that spans the 20th century. And uh, remains with us today, but what Jacobs is uh, is really doing as much as uh, I had, have tried to describe how she challenged ideas of functionalist zoning, that that really uh, uh, hugely critical important overarching paradigm. The other paradigm that she challenged was uh, was a kind of philosophy. Of suburbanism not not exactly suburbanization uh, but but suburban suburbanism, um, by which I mean the reshaping of cities in ways that are suburban at the same time that suburbs were also being built
0: so are you talking about a like single family home on a little plot of land mm-hmm.
1: that that's 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 of course the suburban model the the urban model is the housing project um, and of whether it's uh, affordable or high income that sits on a lawn. That is uh, uh, with, as m- as the, with the uh, the least amount of ground coverage of buildings covering the ground or the maximum amount of open space. That is really fundamentally a suburban way of thinking about cities.
0: She, she, she critiqued the, the lawns around these big projects because she says they're empty. Nobody's ever there. Uh, you have these you, uh, architects in their mind or developers in their mind are thinking, we're going to have this big lawn and it's going to be wonderful. People can be out and play in it or whatever, but nobody ever is out there because the streets, the way the streets are placed, keep people from, from going out to the lawn. It's really yeah. interesting.
1: It, it is interesting, and, I, and I don't even re- I'm not even completely convinced that, that the designers thought that people would occupy those lawns uh, any more than the idea of a suburban front lawn is necessarily a place to be occupied. It is, it is a, it's a buffer, uh, and it has um, associated with it a certain types of aesthetic sensibilities, um, and, and also ones that I think are very uh, primal in the sense of the way, um, just human beings respond to, uh, you know, the, the stuff of nature of, of, of plants. And, uh, and, and, and I think this is a, uh, this is a deeply rooted, uh, human sensibility. Um, and, it, and if it wasn't, you know, it, we wouldn't have, um, you know, uh, so many people drawn to the suburbs, um. But what she, what Jacobs um, criticized was the, uh, was, was deploying those sorts of sensibilities in the urban condition, uh, not necessarily because she didn't understand the, the lore of suburbs or the appeal of, of natural environments, uh, but rather uh, because th- those sorts of um, planning sensibilities destroyed. What made cities work?
0: What was that? What made cities work? Well,
1: one of, one of the critical issues about, uh, one of the critical um, elements that, that Jacobs argued for was, again, the opposite of the prevailing sensibility. The prevailing sensibility in terms of uh, housing project design, again, whether affordable or high income, was to use the uh, the was to cover the least amount of ground, and this was it was almost competitive to see how little ground could be could be could be covered with a building. So it was a very good thing if a build if a, in a housing project only twenty five percent of the ground was covered and seventy five percent of it was left open, whether that was for parks or lawn or whatever whatever it might be. Uh, but anything except for the stuff that cities are, are really made of, which, well, which tends to be uh, densely packed buildings. So Jacobs argued for just the opposite of that. She really argued for the, um, the uh, a minimum amount of open space, and the, really the, the open space that she wanted to see preserved uh, pretty much exclusively was public streets. And so, in her, uh, you know, for, for for cities that worked well, that were urban, to come around to your to answering your question, were those where there was um, uh, there was concentration of buildings and um, a concentration of public space, which would primarily be streets and sidewalks that could be occupied by everyone, as compared to huge amounts of open space. Uh, which was in fact private. Um, so the problem with these lawns uh, in in a in a housing development where 75% of the land might not be occupied was that 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 space was was effectively private. Um, in addition to being well not not uh, vitally uh, not not urban um, and not contributing to urban vitality, it was. It was also private, so she wanted to see um, actually public space uh, or a private, really private space occupy actually more of the ground, um, but less of the open space to be uh, to be private, and so that there was a concentration of, of open space on uh, in, in, in streets and sidewalks. What
0: was her uh, what, vis- what was her vision or her opinion or her viewpoint on uh, parks in cities? Wasn't she proposing like small uh, square blocks, short streets, right? Uh, right. Lots of buildings together. Lots going on on the street level because she's talking about stoops. People would sit on the stoops and talk to each other and that sort of thing. Uh, what was her view of uh, of parks? Because she did she did fight for is it the Washington Square in New York City?
1: That's right. the The, the question your question about about her attitude about parks and about short blocks are, are both related to uh, to this concept of um, a concentration of building um, and and the um, and high ground coverage uh, again rather than there being um, excessive amounts of open space that was effectively private. Uh, short well the parks. She, 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 she. You're absolutely right. She argued should basically be few in number, or um, they shouldn't. There, simply there shouldn't be too, you know, too much park space that could be effectively, um, effectively used and uh, and say enthusiastically used. Uh, so, if you had extensive amounts of park space, it was um, that, that might be public. Um, that might be a bit better than having extensive amounts. Well, it would be better than having extensive amounts of open space that was private. But nevertheless, if you have extensive park space, you once again have relatively, um, low ground coverage. Uh, if you, if you push this, this idea to the extreme and, um, and, and, um, you, you would not have the, the concentration of, uh, of activities. Um. Unless, of course, those that park space could be used. So she um, she absolutely argued that um, uh, that um, parks were important, but uh, in abundance uh, they were uh, they were not not helpful. She spends uh, 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 more than a chapter discussing this issue
0: in her in her uh, in the book. You've got a, her interaction with that. I mean, the who's who of of architecture and planning, Louis Kahn, I.M. Pei, Louis Mumford, Edmund Bacon, Robert Moses, uh, Douglas Haskell, who is a, her editor at uh, the Architectural Forum, Catherine Bauer. But the nemesis of all, the nemesis that seems to be the one who's the nemesis to her is uh, Robert Moses in his ideas. Can you talk a little bit about Robert Moses as a sort of a counterpoint to Jane Jacobs?
1: Yeah, Robert Moses is um, is, is, is is definitely um, is understood today to be um, her her nemesis, and and uh, in uh, in 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 many ways, um, he he certainly was. Yeah, he was behind um, the uh, the Washington Square um, when the battle. Uh, he he was. Um, he wanted to extend Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park, and uh, that was very much his plan. Um, there may have been uh, uh, pre-existing plans for for a lot of uh, these ideas um, that he was pushing forward. They, th- these ideas had their own history, uh, but uh, but you know he he was aggressive um, and 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 oftentimes deceptive about um, trying to see them. Um, put in, built, and uh, these ideas put into place. So Washington Square was. Uh, he was definitely behind Washington Square, and uh, and she fought that. So in in that sense, uh, uh, they they were um, uh, they were at odds for sure. And this was also definitely the case with the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which is a project that he championed and uh, she fought. And um, and in, in that in in that case as well, they were uh, they were at odds. Um, and um, this is um, these, these battles have, have taken on um, kind of the character of, um, of legend and mythology. Um, in some ways that's that's great because uh, it's important that we remember this history and, and we remember it um, these battles um, of you know, of 60 some years ago. Uh, as a kind, as kinds of legends, um, and they're they're important for reminding us uh, uh, of of you know the ways that our cities could could be reshaped, um, and that we the public needs to be vigilant. Uh, on the other hand, um, some of the the David and Goliath types of stories, they uh, uh, forget. Um, that Jacobs didn't work on these things single-handedly; that these are very much community-based efforts, and uh, and also that her own ideas about certain certain things about cities evolved over time. The other thing is that uh, although Moses um, was incredibly uh, critical as as a power broker, as an as an individual, who was extremely powerful. Uh, he wasn't alone. And um, some of the battles that Jacob fought really had um, uh, had really had less to do with him. so um, he might have wanted to, to uh, totally reshape Manhattan um, but he he wasn't able to do that um, single-handedly uh, but that doesn't mean that there weren't others that were willing to, to, uh, to do similar things um, so for example one of the one of Jacobs' other critical um, activist uh, projects and, and, and um, huge battles concerns her own neighborhood. Um, it's it's the uh, which, which her own neighborhood um, and I described this this uh, this battle in at some length uh, towards the end of my book. As soon as she's finished writing Death and Life, literally within weeks of, of her sending off the manuscript. She opened a paper to find that her own neighborhood um, would be uh, uh, would would be considered for um, for redevelopment, and uh, you know, so exactly the sort of things that she had been writing about. Um, rather uncanny can- in terms of the timing, uh, but this was a this this redevelopment uh, um, proposal of the for the West Village was was really not something that. Uh, uh that brother Moses was involved with this was very much a city planning commission uh, effort and uh, and uh, and so I, I think in the, in the bigger picture it, it's the uh, the ideas that Moses shared with with others that um, is what we today really need to remember. Because if we just think it was about Robert Moses, then we think it was about a a villain and a bad individual, rather than some ideas that were were shared quite broadly, quite widely. And um, as we think about that, we we can really reflect more on uh, um, ideas that we might uh, share that... uh, uh, that that might be the equivalent, if that
0: makes sense. Well, she was she was definitely, the way you talk about her, she was definitely uh, against this top-down planning that disregarded people that were living in the place that was going to be, you know, re- redesigned, that there was no effort. There was people making grand plans based on grand visions of what they thought it should be without talking to the people who actually live there. And uh, so she was very much for... Uh, cities to be flexible and creative and diverse and 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 really alive in organisms instead of this sort of top-down mechanical sort of, I'm going to impose this on uh, the space without regarding how people actually lived in the space. It's, and so, so her book was published, her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. First, I want to ask you about the title of the book. It's rather odd. The death and life. I thought it would be the life and death of American cities. Do you do you have any insight into that title of why she chose that title?
1: Yeah, it, it's related to to one of these themes you 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 just mentioned. This um, sense of the um, uh, the organic, uh, self organized uh, conception of cities uh, that she held, and um, this idea of um, of life, uh, of following death, uh, death and life, uh, is, one of a, um, um, a, a, kind of, uh, uh, organic, uh, philosophy or, or, sens- or sensibility that, that relates to the, to the ways that, that she thought about cities, just, just as you, as you, as you suggest, which was, um, from the bottom up, um, uh, rather than, than, than the top down. So, the, um, yeah, the, uh, the that that's really what the, t- the title is referring to, um, and uh, um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of different issues here to to consider. So there's this one, there's this question about the city as an organism, self organizing, and then there's an, an the issue that you you brought up um, that's closely related, and that is her I, her her. Uh, sense uh, of the local, and, um, and these, these ideas are closely connected. So she really had an idea about uh, American, a philosophy of American democracy that was uh, very, um, very pure, I'd say, or very fundamental. Uh, one might even say idealistic, and in this sense, one might even say utopian, her idea of the the way American democracy would work is that it is extremely local, and that it is highly participatory. And one of the paradoxes or or problems uh, in her philosophy is what happens when the uh, when uh, communities are not really um, active; they are not they're not really functioning participatory. Democracies. And uh, I think she had really huge frustrations with um, with this uh, phenomenon. Um, But on the other hand, she believed that uh, vital cities, uh, diverse cities, would help to enhance participatory democracy. In the ways that they built communities and allowed um, allowed networks of people to to um, emerge and um, and reinforce each other, so the, these issues go hand in hand um, in, in very complicated ways. Um, and we could look at the opposite condition in the, in the suburbs, where um, in in and in, in, in the the, the modern. Um, modernistic, functionalistic um, conception of city planning, which is um, economically segregated and socially segregated and racially segregated, uh, those sorts of segregations um, uh, prevent uh, diverse networks from forming, and without these div- diverse networks forming, um, the p- participatory local democracy is thwarted.
0: It's interesting what you're saying. Basically, our built environment is, actually has political implications. And I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, how was her book received? And there seemed to be some political ramifications to her idea, because you talk a little bit about and I think in the last chapter, about how conservatives, liberals, libertarians, all kinds of people responded to her book and what they took out of it. Can you talk a little bit about what, what are the political implications and how were how did people respond to her?
1: Well, I, I as you say, I, I I talk about the reception of the book, um, particularly in the New York context. Um, and in one of the things I try to, I'm, I'm pointing out there is that both conservatives and liberals are responding very positively to the death and life of great American cities. Uh, but in in the, the cross section that I focus on. Um, with with a with a series of, of of anecdotes, they actually are m- most of them are New York City based people, writers and uh, and journalists and so on. And so I really offer there that that, that part of the part of the um, shared um, sympathies that cross these sort of ideological lines um, might be shaped by the the common the commonality the um, the, uh, the common ground of the city itself but um, uh, but this is uh, but the reception is um, uh, of, conserv- of both conservatives and, and liberals um, also of course transcends um, New York City and and, um, and, and cities in uh, cities themselves um, the other ideological uh, uh, investigation that, that I've That I pursue in in there has to do with libertarianism, as as um, as you've touched on, and uh, this is a this is a really complicated um, uh, 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 discussion. uh, That uh, but but in a nutshell, I tried I I I refute the idea that she was a libertarian um, in the way that we think about libertarians today. and in a larger context, yeah. in a larger context, the libertarianism of of our time right now um, is very different than it was um, in the you know in the sixties.
0: Would you say that she was more like a communitarian? Um. Yeah. It just seemed to me like she was more communitarian, localism, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me let me, let me, as- let me ask you uh, about. Uh, Kind of at the end here of our, our time together, how does our thinking about cities today or or been shaped by her, even though a lot of people don't know who Jane Jacobs is? but how what are we doing now that reflects her philosophy, and what are things that we're doing that has that just goes on with the same old ideas?
1: Well what's a bit frustrating as we, as we look back over the the decades since she published Death and life is that we've, we've had, you know, we've, we've had this paradigm shift. Uh, and so her ideas and the ideas of the diverse city, the ideas of the complexity, the ideas of the self-organized city and the ideas of the pedestrian oriented city, all these ideas and the, the mixed use city and so on, all these ideas are, um, are completely commonplace today. The, uh, the dilemma, in a sense, is that uh, although there was a lot of building that was going on in the post-war period with a lot of bad ideas, today we might have much better ideas, but there's actually very little being built. Um, it's a uh, uh, in in the uh, in the fifties. Um, the fifties were a time when. Uh, basically a third of Manhattan, uh, or a third of a city, um, could be, uh, could be mapped out for modernization, for redevelopment, for change. Uh, and today it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's an accomplishment when, uh, when an intersection, um, uh, gets, uh, gets improved. And, um, that's a that's that's a you know that's a uh that's a frustrating thing so I, I think today um we have we have a lot of knowledge about how to make better cities um but we're not making them uh and um and unfortunately when when jacobs was writing uh there was a lot of um there was a lot of there were a lot of resources and there was a lot of um, ambition to to reshape cities uh but unfortunately with some some poor ideas
0: and there, was, there was government funding at the time there was yep. a there was a lot of government funding now all the funding is coming from private development yeah. and, and so private development is going to build cities the way they what is suits them not necessarily the be, what is best for everyone
1: yeah and then this is true um, and, uh, and very quickly if then the uh, if then the the syllogism goes that well that, that today we need the kinds of um, massive sort of top-down um, uh, cataclysmic money uh, that Jacobs um, wrote 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 uh, criticized. Then that, that, well we would be in a, we'd be in another dilemma there. So so we do have um, we we do have a dilemma about uh, how we could have the the kind of incremental uh gradual money uh, and uh, whether that was uh federal or or local it would help uh shape cities um in, in slower and uh in slower and more po- positive ways um than in, in cataclysmically uh, but um that's um that's uh that's hard to it's hard to see happening right now
0: Okay, uh, Peter, you've been very generous with your time. I have one final question. What are you working on now?
1: Well, right now I'm, I'm working on Volume 2, which is a reader's guide to the death and life of the great American cities.
0: Oh, okay.
1: The book, uh, Becoming Jane Jacobs, is, is really about, it, um, it. it's not so much um, about that book except um, how she came to write it and what her ambitions uh, were for writing it and, uh, and what she learned while writing it. Uh, volume 2 is, is really about the book itself. And um, it's, for me, an exciting project because there's actually a lot of uh, little details um, that don't really, didn't really find their way into becoming Jane Jacobs. I, I look forward to sharing those.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Peter. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website, www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.